You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional audio resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. All right. Well, good morning, church family. Good to see you. For those uh, watching at home, glad you're with us as well. If you've got a Bible with you, I'd love for you to turn with me to Romans chapter 5. There in your New Testament, Romans 5. Uh, if you're joining us first time as a guest, I want to welcome you. My name is Shay Sumlin. Lead pastor here, we have been walking through uh, the book of Romans in our New Testament, an incredible, incredible crown jewel, really, of our Bible, showing us the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this morning, I want, to, uh, I want to show us what I believe is one of the most precious doctrines in the Christian faith, and that is the doctrine of the eternal security of the believer. Can you lose your salvation? That's the question we're going to be looking at here this morning. We have spent nearly five weeks looking at how a holy God saves a sinful human being through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, not by any works of our own, but by the work of Christ on the cross for us, shedding his blood so that we might be forgiven of our sin, satisfying the just wrath and penalty of God, the justice that our sin demanded, and so that we could be reconciled and brought back to God. That is the beauty of the gospel when we have been looking at the last five weeks. Now this week, we're going to see that not only are you merely saved by faith alone in Jesus Christ, but you are also secured by faith alone in Jesus Christ. Now, I probably don't need to remind you, these are some pretty insecure days that we're walking in here as of late. I mean, it just seems like 2020 has just been the year of instability like any other year I've ever experienced in my life. I mean, we're just in any given moment, it seems like the solid footing you thought you once had shifts underneath you. And there is so much insecurity and fear in our culture right now. And if we're not careful, what can oftentimes happen is that our physical human experiences could then get projected upon our God as if he is the same as the circumstances and experiences that we are seeing around us. And this is just true in life in general. I mean, our human life is lived constantly by the law of entropy. If something is in order, guaranteed, it's going to move towards chaos. If something is whole, it's just a matter of time before it's broken. This happens in every area of our lives. You go buy a house, something is guaranteed to break the first day after you sign the contract, maybe minutes after. Uh, You go buy your iPhone, it's just a matter of time before you're dropping 100, 150 bucks to get that screen replaced. Uh, because it's been cracked. Something is going to break. You, you go buy a car. That car is immediately going to depreciate the moment you pull off that parking lot. I mean, just friendships, relationships, marriages. We all start off with expectations in one way, and we experience brokenness in just a matter of time. And what's, what's, what we need to guard against, if we're not careful as Christians again, is that we then take that human reality that everything is eventually going to disappoint us, everything is eventually going to be lost of what we initially hoped for, and we project that upon our faith in God. And we assume that what God has started, somehow that might be lost. And there is actually many who hold to a lie that believes that Yes, salvation is a gift of God that has been freely given to his children. But once we receive that gift, it is up to us to secure it all the way to the end. 
Now, here's the problem with that. If you believe, if you hold to that, that salvation is by faith, but you have to keep it by works, not only is that illogical, but it is incredibly fearful having to walk through life always worried that at any moment this salvation can be taken away from me. And if indeed you're going to hold to that position that salvation is a gift that must be secured by your own works, I'm going to tell you right now, if that's what you believe, not only is it possible you can lose your salvation, I will guarantee you 100% you've already lost it. Because the truth is, if you and I were not good enough to earn our own salvation, what makes us think we're going to be good enough to preserve it? Like, we have to have a God who actually finishes what he begins. Otherwise, he is not God. And what we're going to see this week is that what is true of Christ as our head is also true of his body, the church. That if Jesus right now is safe and secure at the right hand of God, then so shall you and I be. And so we're going to look at this beautiful precious doctrine here that starts in Romans chapter 5, only going to get introduced to us today. We're going to look more in depth at it when we get to Romans 8 and 9. But right now, listen to this, and I want you to notice how this text begins in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, he's concluding the last two chapters of justification by faith. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, now I want you to notice A very important grammatical change right there. This is the first time now in Romans, Paul is speaking about something in the past tense. Something has changed going into chapter 5. Paul is assuming that now after Romans chapter 3 and 4, you have been saved. Isn't that amazing? Like he is assuming that after two chapters now of walking you through justification by faith, that your salvation comes through faith alone, in Christ alone, by his grace alone, that you have now received that salvation and you are saved. If you have not gotten saved by Romans chapter 5, then all you're going to be doing from this point forward in this letter is reading somebody else's mail. And so if you have yet to put your faith in Jesus Christ, I implore you, go back to Romans chapter 3, verse 21, and camp there all the way through the end of chapter 4, and revisit the beauty of the doctrine of justification by faith, that you are saved by Christ's work alone, not your works, and rest in him. But from this point forward, Paul is going to be speaking directly to the Christian now. And will now begin showing the Christian, those who have put their trust in Jesus Christ, exactly what you have received and exactly what has been secured by your faith in Jesus Christ. And I want to show you what Paul says here are seven major things that have been secured for you in Jesus Christ. Seven things that you can rest in, guaranteed take to the the bank that Christ has provided for you through your faith in him. The first thing that you're going to see there at the end of verse one is peace with God. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now you got to understand, remember in chapters one through three, Paul describes us as being at war with God. We were rebels of God. We were enemies of God. We had great enmity 
between us and God due to our rejection of him. But now, through Jesus Christ and his work, his sufficient work on the cross, the war is over. It is over if you have put your trust in Jesus. You are now fully accepted by him. His perfect shalom now rests with you. There is no war between you and God. God is no longer mad at you. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, understand that verse one there, is that, is there a qualifier there? Is there a, is there a condition there? Is there a command there in verse one? No, it's a fact. If you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, the war's over. God is not angry with you anymore. There is no wrath and condemnation over you anymore. There is no condition there that, but if it is this from now on, Peace with God through the cross of Jesus Christ. The greatest peace treaty that has ever been proposed on planet earth has been enacted for you. You are at peace with God. Second thing that is secured for you there in verse two is access to God. He says, through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, meaning The great veil that once separated you and I as sinful men and women from the very presence of God, that veil has been torn down. It has been removed. We now have front door access as children of God to the intimacy of the sanctuary of God in order to experience ongoing intimacy and communion with him and his presence with us. And I love how the New American Standard translates this verse, translates the word access as introduction, because this access is only the beginning. It is a foretaste of all the intimacy that is still yet to come for us with God. Known now in this life and in full in the one to come. But the door has now been opened to us. He says it is by his grace that we can now stand in that sanctuary, in that presence with God. In the Old Testament, remember, no human was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies. Only once a year, the high priest could enter into the Holy of Holies. And even then, when he entered in, he entered in trembling. Because one wrong move by a sinful man, and he's done. And so he trembled. There was never confidence to enter into the holy presence of God for a sinful man. But now, Through the substitutionary work of Jesus Christ, we have been given grace through his forgiveness to stand confidently in the presence of God. That's what grace does, by the way, that law could never do. Grace gives you confidence to stand, not confidence in you, but confidence in what Christ has done for you. My daughters, by the way, every 13th birthday, we have a big rite of passage for them. And mom takes them away on a big retreat, spends uh, some really quality time going through some stuff with them and, and uh, really celebrating them as they make this kind of these, these landmark transitions in their lives. And for uh, the end of that weekend, it culminates in a dinner with dad and they're dressed up and I'm dressed up and we sit down and it's where I really share the depths of my testimony with my daughters. And I really just share how the gospel, again, once, once again, reinforcing what I've already always taught them, but how the gospel has transformed my life. And, 
And what I do is I present my daughters with a ring at that point. And a lot of folks might call that a purity ring, right? Here's a ring that just kind of indicates God's desire for your purity until your marriage. And when you get married, you can give me this ring back type deal. But I have called it a grace ring because I want my daughters to know two things about the grace of God. I want them to know that it is the grace of God that is the best motivator for your heart to pursue obedience to him. Not law, not shame, not guilt, grace. His grace that has been poured out for you on the cross of Jesus Christ. He loved you so much that he gave his own son for you. And his grace for you is what will fuel you and compel your heart to want to obey him. But I also want you to know that if the day comes that you fail that, that you compromise in that, it is that same grace that will be waiting for you there right now to forgive you and to compel your heart towards repentance and realignment with him. And so every time you look at this ring, I want it to remind you of the grace of God, the grace of God that gives you confidence to stand. And that is what God has given us. That is what's been secured is this access into the grace of God and his intimacy. That's the second thing that we've been given. There's a third thing though, in the end of verse two, not only peace with God and access to God, but also hope in God, where he says, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now, again, we've talked about this before. This is not human hope. Human hope is so fickle. Human hope is fingers crossed. Human hope is maybe the Cowboys will sneak out a win tonight, but we know that's not really good hope right there, right? That's human hope. Maybe it will, maybe it won't. Probably it's not, it ain't. This is not human hope. We have been given through Jesus Christ divine hope, biblical hope, hope in assured reality. It is going to happen. It just hasn't happened yet. And so we wait. And what we are hoping in, he says there, is the glory of God. This is Paul reminding the Christian to look ahead. Go ahead and read the end of the book. And you know how this is going to end. The glory of God in this context here is the final consummation of our faith. The day when we will no longer take our salvation in Christ by faith, but we'll take it by sight. Paul told Titus, this is what we're waiting for. In Titus chapter 2, verse 13, listen to this. Our blessed hope is what we're waiting for, which is the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul also told the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17 and following, this light momentary affliction that you're walking through right now, is only preparing you for an eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, that wouldn't be hope, that would be reality. But as we look to the things that are unseen, the promises of God that we haven't seen fully consummated yet, that's what we're hoping in. And that's not a fingers crossed, maybe it will, maybe it won't. That is an assured reality that we are simply told to wait for. And we wait in hope. So when the day comes that the last thing that you see on this earth is the hospital lights above your bed, you don't have to fear what is on the other side. 
you can rest easy knowing for certain what awaits you if your faith is in Jesus Christ, the fullness of the glory of God that will be yours. What Jesus has purchased for you is your hope, and it has been secured. The fullness of his glory. But not only do we have that secured for our future, but also right now. Remember when we talked about that momentary affliction. What about our sufferings? I want you to know a fourth thing that Paul says has been secured for us, and that is our suffering for God. And you go, wait a minute. How is that a good thing here? Follow me. Or follow Paul. Watch this. Verse 3. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. Now, let's pause there for a second. Why in the world could a Christian say that there is a rejoicing in sufferings? Now, if you were with us here earlier this summer, we walked through our Theology of Suffering series right when COVID was shutting us down. But we remembered as we walked through James chapter 1, what Paul says here and what James also says in James chapter 1 is that the reason a Christian can have joy in the midst of suffering, which seems almost non-human to do, but is because you know something that the rest of the world doesn't know. You know that there is a God who is sovereign over these sufferings, who's using these sufferings to produce something in you that you could not have produced in you apart from them. And God in his sovereignty can take what the enemy has meant for evil and use it for our good. Only God can do that. And in this situation, in our sufferings that God has appointed for us, he has secured three prominent things to come through those sufferings that he lists right here. The first one at the end of verse three is endurance. Suffering, if you will allow it according to God's plan for you, it will produce in you endurance or otherwise translated perseverance. The word that's used there for endurance is the word hupomone in the Greek. Hupo means underneath. Mone means to remain. It is literally the ability for you to remain clinging to Jesus underneath all the sufferings that you're walking through. Trusting that Jesus will bring you through this. Let me ask you, are any of y'all runners, by the way, in here? And I'm not talking Nike cross training, so go ahead and put your hands down. I'm talking about... When conflict comes, when hardship comes, are you a runner? When fight or flight, you're going to go, I'm out. I'm a flight. If that's you, Paul is saying one of the purposes of trials in God's economy is to teach you how to stay, to teach you how to stay, not to tap out, not to run, not to try to build a life for yourself that constantly is avoiding pain but to lean in to Jesus when the pain comes. That's what God is seeking to get you to do. Because the longer that we hang in there by clinging to Jesus and not tapping out, over time, that endurance will eventually produce something else that he says there in verse 4, and that is character. And specifically here, the Greek word that's used is the word dokime, which literally means proof. Proven character. As you learn not to cut and run in the midst of trials, the endurance of clinging to Jesus over the long haul will ultimately serve by God to prove who you are in Jesus Christ. Let me ask you a question. What's the easiest way to tell somebody's a Christian? Is it to see a cross around their neck, fish on their car? 
Is it to get them to walk an aisle and pray a prayer? Is the best way to tell who's a Christian to get them in the baptismal waters? To have them rehearse an articulated gospel testimony? Is that the only evidence that proves that somebody's a Christian? Is that the best way to tell? Not at all. The best way to tell who's truly a believer and who's truly not is to watch somebody walk through fire. That's how you're going to tell. Nothing sifts through and refines our carnal motives in this life. Nothing teaches us to cling to Jesus in this life better than trials. Matthew chapter 13, Jesus reminded, he said, when persecution arose, Matthew said, when persecution arose because of the word, immediately they fell away. When did Judas tip his hand? Was it when Jesus was feeding the 5,000? Was it when Jesus was walking on water? No, it's when it became clear that, Je- that Jesus was about to be arrested. And right then, when this thing was about to go south, that's when Judas tips his hand. See, we tend to feel that trials are somehow evidence that God is separating himself from us. The trials are somehow evidence that we, we have been separated from God, that God has brought, wouldn't have brought this upon us if he wasn't mad at us or something like that. But the reality is God is not using these trials to bring a wedge between you and him. He's using these trials to draw you closer to him. He's using these trials to prove your faith, that it's not just academic head knowledge or a profession of the mouth, but it is actually what you believe. You, you and I leaning into our trials is what gets us to cling to Jesus, proves our character. And at the end of verse four, when that proven character is forged, when that proof is forged, what will it ultimately yield in us? He says, hope, hope right there. Character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame. This is assured hope. This hope is the added assurance that no matter what you walk through in this life, no matter what your faith in Jesus may cost you in earthly currencies, this faith will not disappoint you in the end. That's what the word shame means. It means to disappoint It will not disappoint you. Even though the cards are stacked against you, even though you're facing persecution and hardship, even though it feels less and less popular to be a Christian in this country than ever before today, when it feels like, man, is everything falling apart? Understand this, believer. Jesus Christ will have the final say. And when you stand before him at the end of these days, at the judgment of God, you will be vindicated fully in your faith in Jesus Christ. Let every man be found a liar. God is to be found true. You will not be embarrassed or put to shame in the day of judgment. Paul said these words at the very end of his life to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1. Listen to this. Paul said, for this reason, I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. This is Paul, y'all, at the very end of his life, the last letter he wrote, who had been beaten, he had been stoned, he had been mocked, he had been slandered, he had been imprisoned, and he was about to be put to death all for his faith in Jesus Christ. And yet he persevered in hope that when he got to the end, 
that wouldn't be wasted in vain. That there is a God who is not just a promise maker, but who is a promise keeper. And his faith in that God would not be shamed. Your security in your suffering is knowing that no matter what trials may come, God is using those trials for your good, for his glory, and God will not drop the ball on you. He will carry you through all the way to the end. So you hang in there. So we have, God through the gospel has secured for us peace with God, access to God, hope in God, even suffering for God. But I love this one in verse five, the end of verse five. He has also secured for us the very love that comes from God. Love from God. He says at the end of verse five, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That word poured into right there, that is the promise of Joel chapter two. The prophet Joel that said, when God comes to rescue you, he will completely pour out his love for you in order to secure you once and for all. How do you know? What is the evidence that God has poured out his love for you? Well, for starters, you've been given a birth certificate that proves you're his. And his name is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit within you. As we saw back in chapter four, I won't belabor it here, but the Holy Spirit is your down payment on your salvation, your deposit, your seal, your certification, your certainty that what God has started, he will complete. That is the Holy Spirit emptied out for you as proof of his love for you. And when he was poured out, you didn't just get part of the Holy Spirit, you got all of the Holy Spirit in your conversion, at your salvation. And the point of this verse is that if God has given you his very own spirit to live within you as a seal of his love, do you really think he's going to renege on the rest of the promises? Do you really think he's going to drop the ball in heaven on you? Not at all. And the next six verses are only going to serve to illustrate the very extent of his love for you and how God simply cannot revoke the salvation that he has given to you because evidenced in the love that he has poured out for you. We're continuing on with his love here. Look at verse six. Follow his logic. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Now, the logic here is this. What were you? Who were you to God at the moment Jesus came and died for you? You know who you were? He gives us two words to describe who we were at that time. Helpless and ungodly. Helpless means that you had no power within yourself to save yourself. Ungodly means that you had no appeal for anybody else to save you. In verse 10, he's even going to go so far as to call us enemies. That's who we were. That's who you and I were at the moment when Jesus came to die for us. Helpless, ungodly enemies. Now, in verse 7, is this kind of love that would die for your enemies? Is this a normative love experienced by humanity? He will say, it is not. You can't compare this kind of love to any kind of human love at all. He, he, he gives an example of human love in verse 7. For one, 
will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one might dare to even die. Now here's what that means. This is Jewish nomenclature right here. In Jewish nomenclature, a righteous man is actually considered less than a good man. A righteous man was simply one who would do the letter of the law, who would do what was legal and what was true. But a good man is one who actually does the spirit of the law, who actually goes above and beyond just the mere letter and does what is good and what is loving. And so he says, a human being would seldom die for simply somebody that just was a righteous man, just following the law. Maybe you'll see an occasional story of somebody who went above and beyond to give their life for somebody that was worthy of it. But at the end of the day, human love is very conditional. That's what he's showing. But in verse 8, tell me about God's love. He says in verse 8, but God, he shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Notice how verse 8 just began, but it's a contrast. God's love is totally distinct from human love. That word shows there, or also translated demonstrates, it means to introduce somebody. Literally to step forward and introduce somebody brand new. That's what that word shows means in Greek. It means for millennia, you've had a parade of human love. This is what it means to love. And you have all kinds of forms and every one of them are imperfect and broken. And ultimately end up betraying you at some point. And then all of a sudden, at one point in history, God steps forward and goes, I would like to introduce you to a totally distinct love. And notice the modifier of the term love. His. His love. The New American translate, his own love. It is the idea of something totally distinct and unique in terms of love. Incomparable to any version of humanity's love that we saw in verse 7. Meaning, until Jesus showed up on the cross, we had never seen a kind of love on this earth like God's. God introduces us when? While we were sinners, which is a term that describes the outworking of our ungodliness. So the thought is, if God loved you while you were a helpless, ungodly sinner, to give Jesus Christ for you, if he loved you that much as a pagan, in verse nine, how do you think he feels towards you now that you're his son and daughter? You see that in verse nine? Since therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. How much more? Much more now that you're a son or daughter. If he loved you as a sinner, do you really think he's going to drop the ball on you now that you're a saint? Now that you're a child of God? There is no way after all that God has gone through to get you as a pagan that he is going to now lose you somehow as a child. I don't even think we get how insane and crazy this love really is, y'all. Let me ask this. How many of y'all got children in this room? Raise your hand. Anybody? Got children. Great. Would you give 
one of your children for somebody else? Would you sacrifice your child's life for somebody else? How about a, how about a friend? Would you do it for a friend? Thinking, no, ain't no way. Hey, I'm just answering that right now. No, ain't doing that. How about an enemy? Would you give your child for your worst enemy? You're like, heck no. These are fighting words right now. Ain't no way that's happening. But keep playing with this. Not only give your child for that enemy, but then take that enemy and adopt them as your own child. And put that enemy in your child's room and let them wear your child's clothes. Would you do that? Oh, no. Heck no. You see, God introduces for us his own love. It's unlike any other love that we have ever seen on this earth. If you were to take the love of God and try to put it in human terms, they would lock you up and put you in an insane asylum. There is no way they would think we are crazy. So that is the logic. If God gave Jesus for you as a sinner, how do you think that he can drop the ball on you now that you're a child of his? He can't. That's why he says in verse 9, we shall be saved. Is that, a, is, that a, is that a command? No, that's a fact. Verse 10 explains verse 9, but goes even further. And here's your sixth thing, all right? We have peace with God, access to God, hope in God, suffering for God. We have the love from God. And now we have what is secured is that reconciliation to God. It can't ever be unreconciled. This is what he says in verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. If the death of God's son at Calvary is what reconciled me to God while I was an enemy, if, if that death, of God's son reconciled me, which is a word that means to change back. It's a vivid word that shows that Christ, through Christ, the enmity has, that has been brought about by sin has been done away with and the relationship has now been perfectly restored. So if the death of God's son on the cross reconciled me back to God as an enemy, how much more now has my salvation been assured through his life? meaning his resurrection. That's the context here. In other words, if Christ's conquering of the grave has sealed all this, can you lose your salvation? Well, it depends on whether Jesus is still in that tomb or not. If Jesus didn't raise from the dead, then no, I guess you can lose your salvation. But if he raised, oh no, much more is your reconciliation to God secured. And last I checked, that tomb is empty. He has raised. So our salvation in Christ has been secured, bringing for us guaranteed peace and access and hope and endurance through suffering and love and reconciliation. But of all the things that God has secured for us, here's where I want to close with, and don't miss this. The seventh thing that Paul says in verse 11 is your joy in God. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received that reconciliation. I want you to know three times in this passage, Paul has spoken to our joy. 
Verse 2, verse 3, verse 11. Rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. But here, our joy is in something completely transcendent. It is in God himself. The greatest thing about the security of our salvation is not that we just get God's stuff, but we get God. Let me just tell you, last night was evidence of that. Last night, we have had a tradition at the Sumlin household on Halloween for 17 years called Halloweenies and Boogers, where we cook hot dogs and hamburgers for the whole neighborhood. There you go. Halloweenies and Boogers. There you go. You're welcome. We've done it for 17 years. It's all our, all our kids have ever known. But two things changed that this year. One was COVID, which was a complete downer for Halloween this year. Um, and then my daughters had an event at their school. And so it's the first time. So we just had our two youngest daughters with us. And we tried taking them down our street. And there's, of course, just bowls that were sitting out there. And our girls are frustrated why they can't just take the whole bowl of candy and dump it in like their unsafe father did when he was a kid. Um, but we're sitting there. We went home and we're watching Mandalorian uh, last night with our two young daughters. And I look at one of my daughters and I just simply said, I- I'm so sorry, sweetie, that this year is kind of a bummer for Halloween. And she looked at me and she said, ah, it's okay, daddy. At least I'm here with you. And I thought, that's, that's it. You know, we can pour out gifts all day long for our children. And at the end of the day, what your children want more than anything else is they just want time with dad. They just want time with daddy. They just want his presence. Y'all remember the prodigal son story? You remember when the prodigal son returned? Remember what the father gave him? Five things. Gave him a ring, a robe, sandals, fattened calf, and a party. It's awesome, isn't it? Do you remember what the scripture says the son rejoiced in the most? There's none of those things. He rejoiced in the father. The greatest thing that the prodigal son got when he came home wasn't his dad's stuff. It was his dad. Point here in verse 11 is as a saved person, we don't merely have what our God gives us, though that's all true, but we get God. You get your heavenly father and that will never be taken away from you. And I don't care what earthly relationship went damaged with your dad We cannot project that upon the perfect holiness of our heavenly father. He is unlike even the best of our fathers. He is altogether good. And he has gone through every extent to ensure that you are his. And he will not lose that. So we have been assured peace with God, access to God, hope in God, suffering for God, purposeful suffering for God, love from God, reconciliation to God, and joy in God. Believer, rest in Jesus Christ. Remember Jesus's words in John chapter 10, verse 27 and following. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. I don't care what threats you face concerning your salvation. God is greater than them all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. Can you lose your salvation? Answer, is God a liar? No, he's not. Then no, you cannot. 
The question is not, can you lose your salvation? The question may be, did you ever really have it to begin with? Were you truly trusting in Jesus alone, by faith alone, standing in his grace alone? If you weren't, then the issue is you never had it to begin with. You were simply faking it. But if you have indeed put your trust in Jesus Christ, that can never be taken away from you. Amen? So let us rest in that church and use that rest to fuel us forward by his grace into living out our days, fulfilling the mission that God has called us into. I want to invite the band back up here, and we want to celebrate this truth today of the security of God by celebrating through the taking, the receiving of communion. When you came in, you should have received one of these... uh, communion packets here. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, again, what I said at the beginning, I'd encourage you to go back, dwell upon Romans chapter 3, Romans chapter 4, and just fix your gaze upon the perfect person and work of Jesus Christ and put your trust in him. But until then, we would ask you to hold off on taking communion because this is a, an external symbol that's meant to, to reaffirm and reinforce an internal reality. And so we want to celebrate this as believers in Jesus Christ together. And we are reminded, Paul told us, and he told the Corinthian church, for he received from the Lord what he first delivered to them, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke that bread. And he said, this bread is my body for you. And do this in remembrance of me. And so church, we are remembering, we are rehearsing like a husband and wife reaffirming their vows. It doesn't mean that their marriage had ever ended. They are just reaffirming what they already know to be true. We are remembering that our sin demanded a substitute. You and I could not be saved through our own works. You and I were suffering from the wrath of God as enemies of God. And God was faithful to send Jesus Christ to substitute himself for us. And in his body, he was crushed for our iniquity. He was pierced for our transgressions so that we could be forgiven. We we take this bread in remembrance of Christ's body broken for us. Paul said in the same way, Jesus also took the cup after supper. And he said, this cup is my new covenant. The new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of us. And church, again, we are remembering it is the blood of Christ shed for us that has brought about the fulfillment of the new covenant that God promised, which would bring us the forgiveness of our sin, the reconciliation as sons and daughters adopted by God, secured in his love forever, not through our own works, but simply through the blood of Christ that purchased us and holds us until the very end. And we drink this and remember of Christ's blood and forgiveness. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. And so, Father, we do that. We proclaim your death through your Son. We remember and relish in the promise, God, that there is nothing that we can do to make you love us or secure us anymore. And there is nothing that we can do to make you love us or secure us any less because your love and our security in you is not based upon our performance. It is based upon the performance of Jesus Christ. And for that, it can never be taken away. So for anybody who's wandering, 
anybody who's wrestling with assurance that has truly put their faith in Jesus Christ, oh, oh God, may you calm those waters. May you allow us to rest in you, rejoice in you, and help us to persevere until that day when Jesus returns and takes us into the fullness of that promise. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.